Hello, and welcome to episode 49 of the Cognicast. I'm your host, Craig Andera. A few notes for you before we start the show. Uh, around th- places where you're going to be able to find Cognitex this month, where this month is February 2014. On the 18th in Durham, you will find Yoko Harada at the West End Ruby Hack Night, which is at Cognitech headquarters. Uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, from the 24th to the 25th, you will find our very own Stuart Sierra speaking at Dev Nexus. He's talking about, he's got a couple sessions, uh, an intro to closure sec- session and a talk about closure in the large. Then on the 27th, again at Cognitech HQ, you will find probably a whole boatload of us um, at the Triangle Closure Meetup. I know Yoko is going to be there for sure. I will probably be there as many of us will actually be in town at headquarters that week. So be a good time to come on down and say hi to a whole bunch of us. Then um, at the end of the month, the 28th uh, through the 2nd of March, uh, you will find Stu Halloway at the New England Software Symposium where he is giving a whole pile of talks, including closure and 10 big ideas, narcissistic design, which is a fun talk, simulation testing with simulant generative testing, and a talk about Core Async. So those are all great places to find Cognitex this month. Uh, we hope to run into many of you there, uh, one of those places. Um, I think that's it for for notes for now, so now we will go on to episode 49 of the Cognicast. Welcome, everyone. Today is Friday, January 17th in 2014, and this is the Cognicast. Today, we are very, very pleased to welcome Karen Meyer. Welcome to the show, Karen. Hi, nice to be here. Oh, yeah, we're super thrilled that you could make it, and thanks for taking the time. Um, As you know, you mentioned before the show that you've listened, uh, we're going to start out by asking you for the song that we played as the show began. What would you like us to play? Well, I really like Daft Punk. And in particular, um, I love the song "Lose Yourself to Dance." Awesome! All right, I, I, you know it's funny. Like I've I've heard so much from my colleagues and other people, you know, around the recent um, Daft Punk. What they released an album? Is that right? That's right. The I, Random Access Memories. Okay, and I am I just I don't know how, but I just have been completely unaware of them like my whole life. Like, it was like they were like I was like everybody went went nuts when Daft Punk said we're releasing a new album. I'm like, who? So I guess I'm, I mean, there I am revealed as an, I made, I've made music a substantial part of the show and and here I've revealed myself as an ignoramus on the subject. So um, that's cool. That means that I get to listen to another song and become familiar with it as I uh, edit it in and all that good stuff. So that's, that's awesome. Um, Cool. Well, you know, so there are any number of things that we could talk about today. And in fact, um, when you and I were setting up the, the, the recording the show, you said, what should we talk about? And um, I thought it was a really interesting question because it, it made me kind of think about the show from the other perspective. Obviously, 
you know, I'm sitting here uh, asking questions and listening to responses and stuff on every show. But I'm like, you know, it's not maybe if if I can understand why somebody would have the impression that the interviewer is the one determining the course of the show. But but really, um, I think it ought to be flipped. And, and I hope that that has largely been the case, at least on some of the shows. It should really be what do you, what do you want to talk about, Karen? So um, I have a few things that we we could definitely touch on that I think our listeners might be familiar with you from. But let's just start out right there. What what should we talk about today? Well, I'm kind of into robots right now, so I guess we could <laughs> go with that. Yeah, you would never <laughs> guess by watching your your Twitter and your your conference talks, but you you like robots, you say? I do, I do. Um, uh, I just I kind of got into it because we had a um, a project at um, Neo where we're working with a client with some home automation stuff. So, um, you know, I just usually had worked with uh, software generally, but then we started doing stuff with thermostats and locks. And it was just, there's something kind of magical about having your software have an effect on a physical object that is just really cool for me. Um, So after kind of working on that project a bit, I went back and um, I home and I uh, had ordered a Roomba. (laughs) (laughs) and I thought whoa you know it would be really cool to be able to control a Roomba with a closure REPL I mean that would be awesome (laughs) yes so um and and this might be the only podcast in the world where the entire audience is going duh (laughs) so um I looked around and of course you know closure with Java gives you a lot of great leverage to libraries and somebody had already written a Java library for it so it was not that hard to uh, kind of just hook up a closure REPL to talk to it. And uh, yeah, yeah. So that was a lot of fun, um, being able to get my REPL open and have the Roomba dance around and spin around. And um, that kind of started me on my robot road. And then uh, it's it's actually a habit that seems to be increasingly expensive. (laughs) (laughs) So um, then I saw the AR drone. And I, that was kind of my next move up to flying robot that, of course, I wanted to control with closure as well. And um, then, of course, um, it's kind of escalated a little bit more. <laughs> oh, really? What's, so, what's going on now? So uh, for Christmas, I got a, um, a hexapod kit. So uh, this is what I'm working on now. It's a, it's a Phantom X hexapod. But the interesting thing about this is I've actually got to build it kind of from scratch. So, uh, you know, it just came as a kit with servos and, you know, screws and plates, and I've had to assemble it all, um, which has taken me a really long time. I've just now got the legs done. So this is a, a, a walking robot? I don't know what a hexapod it is. is. Yeah. So a hexapod has six legs. It's kind of like a spidery looking thing, and it's really cool. Um, so I saw a video of that. So this is my next. I'm not, I'm not sure how I'm going to talk to it with closure, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to work it in somehow, of course. <laughs> Cool. So, that's my next plans. That that is amazing, and I. Uh, I so I, I'm guessing that you might have. You, you know, you feel free to say no comment or straight up lie to me. I won't mind. I, I'm assuming that you have plans at some point to to do something interesting with this and show the world at a conference, as has been your want. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I have I have a long term goal, and um, I, the lose yourself to dance, uh, Daft Punk. I'd love to have my robots dance to that song. Oh. That's uh, my long-term goal there. <laughs> awesome. You mean like all, all the whole, like a whole troop? Yeah, all the robots. Yeah, why not? All the robots on the dance floor. Uh, I will personally buy you a mirror ball if you can make that happen. 
Um, that's great. So I, I wonder if you could comment a bit on, um, you know, the the closure aspect of this. I mean, uh, I, I agree with you. It is super cool to make things work in the world. And, and I haven't done anything like what you've done, but I have, you know, played around with getting a Raspberry Pi to control a servo motor. And, and I did that with closure. And, and the <laughs> I was sitting there in the living room one day tinkering with it, and I got it to the point where I could make the motor turn a bit w- w- mm-hmm. from the REPL. And I was so, like, happily surprised that I uttered a few words that I probably would not otherwise have said <laughs> if I had, you know, been aware of my kids around me. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's just, you know, that type of feeling. Um, but I wonder if, if – so, so I totally get, like, the, you know, affect the world thing. I, I wonder yeah. if you could talk about how – um, how, you know, is there been anything about closure in particular that has felt appropriate to the task or has been a barrier or, or, you know, just like how has that part of it been? Well, I think like, like I was mentioning with the Java interop, that is, it gives you great flexibility, um, in using stuff that's already out there. Um, I haven't really played much on the JavaScript side of things, but there's a lot of Arduino controls now um, that, you know, we could look on the closure script side of things that would be um, interesting too. So that whole interop is um, really makes it flexible. And of course, the um, the functional nature of it and the composability just makes everything you do pleasurable. Is that something that's, uh, are those aspects of the language particularly appropriate to robotics? Because I mean, one way I could look at it is go, well... I mean, imperative and stateful, that, that's arguably inherent in the problem of having something that does things and is in a position. That's, you, you can make that argument, but um, I think you can still gain a lot from the composability and, um, you know, just general functional programming aspect of things. And then the REPL, um, being able to try things live and play around with it real time is um, a real benefit. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the AR drone, because that's the last one I saw. Uh, you know, was it sort of in any way scary to be writing software that was controlling something with whirling blades and that could, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because um, <laughs> usually you control the AR drone with like your phone or your iPad and you've got, um, you know, controls to... Uh, very in real time, um, make it go up or down, and you can error correct very easily. Uh, but if you're actually writing programs for it and flying it by wire, um, stuff goes wrong a lot <laughs> more <laughs> often. I've crashed it a lot of times, um, got it stuck to the ceiling. I won't generally programmatically control it outdoors because um, it's way too dangerous. Stuff just goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you get it stuck to the ceiling, like it won't turn off or? Well, I was uh, controlling it with trying to program in some beliefs and goals. Um, So I was writing programs that, you know, said um, your goal is to fly up to 1.5 meters. And, you know, it would believe that it wasn't high enough until it got the goal. And then it would believe that it was high enough. And uh, it just kept on going up and up and up (laughs) until it stuck the ceiling. And obviously it had a faulty belief there. <laughs> but yeah. So it, it was, you know, a greater greater than sign error, but <laughs> Yes, the bane of all uh prefix notation uh programmers, right? Exactly. 
Um, and if I guess, how long does the battery last? I'm just curious, like if you had been out of doors and it had just decided to go up forever, like, you know, are we talking a mile in the air or how far do you think it would have gotten? It would go up until it lost the wireless connection. Oh, right. Um, but that would be high enough <laughs> right. to be a problem. Right. High enough that you don't want to catch it when it comes back down. Exactly. But generally it's got about 15 minutes of flight time. Um, so it's not terribly long. Um, but, uh, if you're not flying it continuously too, it lasts a little bit longer. Mm. You know, I have, um, I have two, well, not, not as small as they used to be girls. Um, and the older one is nine and she's interested in programming and, and, and generally in, you know, science and technology stuff. And, you know, we certainly encourage her in that stuff. Um, obviously I'm, you know, a, a programmer and I, I love it if she would get interested in that stuff too. And she has been. And I've been thinking about, um, you know, things like robotics because it, it seems to me that there's there's an aspect of making computers do things that is super cool. Like, you know, if you can draw something on the screen, that's like magic. But, yeah. but as you say, there's something very visceral about being in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there seems more and more options for, you know, kind of computer, I will say machine interaction. Um, it, it, do you Have you given any thought to how you might use some combination of the things you've played with in a kind of an educational context? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I've, um, you know, volunteered at our children's schools cause I have two kids. Um, I have a son who's 10 and a daughter who's just turning eight and, you know, they really love, um, watching what I'm doing and getting involved. They've controlled the Roomba and the AR drone and, um, you know, they're watching, um, we build this hexapod too. So I think it's great for kids to get involved with that. And like I said, I volunteered at our, our children's school and I'd love to see like a program, um, that gets more involved generally in, um, introducing children to robotics. And it's just nice introduction into computers, um, especially girls too. <laughs> uh, really? No. Why do you, why do you say that? Um, I think, uh, Unfortunately, I, I think that there's still a lot of in our society that, um, you know, girls aren't they don't feel that computers and computer programming and robots are a, you know, quote, girls activity. And in fact, even though my daughter has grown up with me being a software developer and has been all around me, totally encouraging her uh, last year. She wanted to sign up for the Lego robotics camp, but then she decided that she didn't really want to because none of her friends were going to be there and it was going to be all boys. So that was really disappointing to me. (laughs) She did at the very end. I convinced her to sign up, so I made her do it. But um, there's still that pressure out there, I think, that um, that's not an activity that girls are heavily involved in. And, um, you know, girls, especially at her age, they want to be around her friends and her other girls and that matters to her. Mm-hmm. So do you, uh, do you have any thoughts on, you know, uh, cause I mean, I'm, I'm deeply interested in this, right? Like I said, I have two girls, uh, you know, and they're nine and five. So, uh, you know, the older one is certainly at the age where there's possibly an inflection point. I've heard people say that a lot of times it's the case that whatever you're really, really into at 10, is what you'll be into for the rest of your life. And for me, you know, computers started for real at 10. So I think a lot about, you know, I don't want to direct her life in any particular direction, but I do want to uh, give her the opportunity to become interested in something that she would enjoy. Um, So, 
I don't remember what my question was, but <laughs> you know, like what what do we do? I guess this, you know, I, that's the question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think exposure is, um, you know, really important. If if I had you know more time, and I might still do it, but uh, I'd love to see like ch- more children's books, especially for girls' chapter books. Uh, they have a lot of. Uh, you know, adventure stories geared towards boys, but maybe like a girls robot club book, um, (laughs) you know, uh, just stuff like that, that kind of makes them feel more comfortable in it. And, um, I think role models are really important too. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I got into technology generally. Um, I went to a performing arts school, so I studied, um, ballet and I thought, you know, I was going to do ballet dancing my whole life. And I did do it for a couple years, <laughs> but um, it didn't work out. And I went back to college and I chose my degree based on um, a really cool physics teacher that I had. And she was a woman and I, I respected her, had a good time in the class. And uh, it was because of her being a role model for me that I chose physics, which um, eventually led me down into um, computer modeling and then in the software career that I love. So, um, you know, from my personal experience, I think role models are important. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've made a point of watching um, some of your presentations with, uh, with my kids, um, primarily because they are cool and they're worth, and they're worth watching, but also um, because, you know, like you say, role models. And it's great for me to show them women doing the things that, that I like. Like, oh, yeah, I could totally do that too. Um, and also because um, I wanted to mention you have an excellent presentation style. I, uh, you seem to really be into, and I think I've heard you say this directly, into um, storytelling um, as, a, as, a, as a thing in and of itself. Is, am I remembering that correctly? Oh, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I, I think it, I love stories, and I think it also came from having kids because, uh, you know, when, when they grow up, we're constantly, um, you know, reading them stories, telling them stories, and it got me thinking about, you know, how we learn. Uh, we learn a lot, not not only from our own experience, but we learn by listening to other people's experiences and storytelling that oral tradition um, through stories is very strong. And I think it's it's kind of tied in a lot to the way our brains process information. And uh, I remember hearing a study, I don't remember exactly where it came from, that um, some people had actually studied problem solving abilities and found that people could actually problem solve better if they were presented with a problem in a context of a story of someone else. Um, so it's just kind of a weird little way our brains work. That's, that's interesting because there's this stereotype, um, at least from, from when I was a kid, of, oh, word problems. Those are the worst, right? Like a train leaves uh, Cincinnati traveling at 20 miles an hour. I guess that's not quite what you're talking about, though. That's a little bit different yeah. <laughs> than like a Hansel and Gretel story or something like mm. that. <laughs> Yeah, you gave a presentation at uh, Strange Loop the year before last um, that I saw, which was about monads, and you presented it as a Lewis Carroll. Uh, oh yeah, that was that was Closure West. Yeah, it was Closure West. Yeah, okay, yeah. sorry, my mistake. Uh, that's okay. But um, yeah, that's the same sort of thing. Yeah, that was quite interesting. I really enjoyed the the um, the style of the presentation. Uh, I encourage people to watch that. Um, so, you let's uh, you work at Neo, is that right? I do, yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about uh, the? I, I actually don't know that much about the company, and maybe you could talk a bit about what they do and what you do for them. Oh, sure. Uh, well, it's a consulting company, so uh, the advantage of that is we get to 
see a lot of different projects and get to work with a lot of different clients. And uh, we do um, kind of two arms. We do your traditional agile consulting. And then we also do lean consulting, which is, um, you know, validation and trying to build the right thing. Um, but at the end of the day, we're building digital product products and software and, um, you know, all that good stuff. <laughs> I'm familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, we have a great, I work in Cincinnati in the Cincinnati office um, with Jim Wyrick. So he's an author of Rake for those that, <laughs> so he's our Cincinnati luminary, but he's also just an incredibly nice guy. He is like one of the nicest guys I have ever met in my whole life. <laughs> he's yeah, great. Jim, I actually know Jim um, socially a bit and he is, he is super great guy and, and a really good speaker, an excellent teacher. Um, yeah, he's, I recommend, you know, if you see, hey, I see this is a presentation by Jim, then you should just watch it. Yeah. And uh, he's also a really good ukulele player, too. Yes, I have seen him do that as well, uh, <laughs> which is funny because he's a really large person and he's got this teeny tiny instrument. Um, but he's like you say, it's really fun to listen to him play. Yeah. So we actually have uh, some impromptu. We have another fellow um, that plays the guitar as well. Um, uh, and we have another fellow at the office, Paul, that does throat singing. So <laughs> wow. It's a little bit odd sometimes. That's but, like uh, the that's like the thing that you see like Tibetan monks do that that type yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always kind of thought that was more of a group activity. Like I never throat singing soloist was uh, cool. So no, he does other singing too. We just uh, he does throat throat singing as a as a side thing. So it's, it's a little odd. It gives a little character to the office. Yeah. Um, right. So there's flying robots and throat singing and ukuleles that place sounds exactly. <laughs> even crazier than Cognitech. Um, so what are you, uh, your role there is, is consultant? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a developer. So, um, yeah, I mostly, um, do Ruby, but we're looking, we do closure as well. And, um, actually we just have a project now where we've been doing a little bit of elixir. So, um, we kind of mix it up. Elixir. Oh yeah. That's, a. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I can't remember. That's another language. I've seen it at the um, Emerging Languages Camp. Um, have you been working in Elixir at all? I am not on that project, but I sit next to them and um, I can hear them going, whoa, cool, look at all the load we're throwing at this stuff. So, What's the what's the sort of the, the, the value proposition of Elixir? Like what's its, its um, it, approach? It's based, it's based on Erlang. So, um, you know, it's it's got all the all the things Erlang is is good at for um, handling lots of connections. And um, it's got uh, a Ruby syntax on top of it that's an Elixir bit. So. Right. Um, so now you have not, how long have you been at Neo? I've been at Neo about three years now. Okay. Oh, so you started there about the same time I started at uh, Cognitech. How did you come to be there? Uh, well, it was edge case at the time. Um, right. So, uh, yeah, so I, I in the community, um, there's a, you know, in Cincinnati, there's Ruby user groups or, or Rails, and I got kind of involved in their community user groups and uh, got hooked up with Jim Wyrick, of course, and some other Rubyists. And um, I like the language, like the uh, people, and um, it just seemed like a great fit. Um, yeah, so th th this reminds me, right? You mentioned education. Of course, I've heard of them as well. And, and so I wanted to talk a bit about um, kind of, approaches to software. You, you mentioned, um, you know, agile, which mm -hmm. uh, means many things to many different people. Um, what's kind of been your 
experience in, you know, Neo or your personal approach to software that, you know, is something that your customers are surprised by or like that you guys bring to the table? Um, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, what's the what's the approach? What's the what's the what's your view of what Agile is and how it helps? I think it, it's definitely partnership and communication and just that feedback cycle. I mean, the feedback cycle is just key. Um, you know, uh, and it really just makes, as, as technologists, you know, we, we focus a lot on software and our craft and, um, you know, that's great and it's really important, uh, but communication with the client and making sure the project is running well, that is super important too. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. um, so when you can marry the two and, um, you know, build the right thing and have everybody, you know, working together, that is, you know, that, that's what we live for. I mean, that's, that's building the right things the right way. And, um, you know, that's what we strive for. Do you, uh, do you pair program? Is that a technique that you use extensively? Yeah, we do. Um, we do a lot of pair programming and, um, we don't do it all the time. Um, but we do it, uh, when it, when we think it's appropriate and find out that we work, works for us. Um, definitely like when we're working on new features, and we can you know, brainstorm that and come up with the best approach. We have these really nice pairing stations in our office that um, there are two tables. And I wish I could, you could see my hands now as I'm trying to <laughs> demonstrate this, but they're offset. So we're not like sitting like right next to each other looking at one screen. We're looking at a mirrored, two mirrored monitors. And so we can each be kind of facing it and be ergonomic and mm-hmm. have our own like space and place to put our coffee so we're not like super close to each other <laughs> mm-hmm. but we can but we can also um, interact and see each other and talk really well because we're kind of talking catty corny to each other so we really like that um, pairing station setup yeah we have we have something similar at uh, Cognitect um, we had something even more like what you were talking about at the old office but when we moved to the to the newer office uh, we it, it was nice. The setup you're, I've done the setup you're talking about on it. It is super nice to have the mirrored and the two keyboards, and, yeah. and um, that's that's yeah. a nice setup. Um, yeah. I wonder if you could talk a bit. Of, you mentioned that you pair, especially when you're um, brainstorming, and mm-hmm. this is something that I personally have thought about at least somewhat, which is there's an aspect of the process of uh, design that, it's it's a creative process, I guess is what I would say. And it can be difficult to be creative in a group, even if that group is two. I mean, there's parts of it that are easier and parts that are less easy. What's been your experience with how you sort of navigate the the mechanics of pairing with the, you know, coming up with the best solution? Well, I, I guess first it helps that uh, if you're really comfortable with your pair. I mean, if you've worked worked with them for a while and you know their styles really well um i think that you know helps um that it can just your thoughts can flow more naturally uh and also the the creativity and design doesn't happen all at once right i mean you can go down one path and be trying it for an hour and like something just doesn't feel right right you know you can't really <laughs> verbalize it mm-hmm. so um uh, you know, it's totally cool at that point where you're just like, hey, you know, I, I just need a break. Let's go and um, go our separate ways. I'm going to go take a walk around the building. I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. Yeah, do some throat singing. 
<laughs> and then coming coming back then and saying, hey, you know, I had this idea. I think this is going to work really well for our design. Let's sit down and um, give this a shot. And, you know, I find that that works, that whole process works really well, well for um, driving a good design. What are you What are you using for tools? Like when you're in the design phase, because like you know, I mean, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a hacker. I've I've yeah. been a programmer for, you know, more years than I'm starting to care to admit. But, um, <laughs> you know, like I know how to open up Emacs and start writing code. Yeah. But I'm coming to believe more and more that that's really the wrong thing to be doing at many stages of the development process. So. Do you have a set of tools that you use that are different from the set when you're producing like executable artifacts or how do you mechanically handle that that part of the process? Well, I, I think it depends on what what level you're designing, right? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> um, but you know, depending on it, whether it's like a small feature or where you kind of know what you're gonna do or if you're you know stepping back and kind of doing more architecture of the system, but we have, copious whiteboards mm -hmm. <laughs> that, um, you know, if you're just talking through things, sometimes nothing beats a pen and a board to talk about design ideas, you know. Have you done, um, like when you're working with clients or the client, it sounds like you're at the office, so the clients are typically remote. If, you are, right. if you're working through ideas remotely, what do you use as a, um, a whiteboard substitute when you need one because that's one place where I feel like you know the remote experience is not the equal of the in-person experience yet yeah yeah that's a good question I haven't found a really good substitute for that have you no <laughs> I, I have a little uh, bamboo tablet you know it's one of those with a stylus and whatever mm -hmm. so you can actually like like draw I don't have the full up um, what are they called the Cintiq the tablets which are the screen on it I guess you could maybe do something with a tablet, you know what I mean? Like if you had like a, an iPad or something, you might be able to do so something might exist. But personally, I haven't found that. And I actually, um, I tend to design my personally um, using uh, org mode. I actually don't draw as many pictures probably as I should, but I just like to think by writing out questions. That's a big part of my personal design process. And so that's text and that's actually... Really easy to do collaboratively. I've used Google Docs is fine. Emacs over Tmux is fine too. But no, I haven't really found something yet where you can do it, obviously, right? There's plenty of drawing tools. But I haven't found something yet where um, it's as fluid as, you know, standing next to you and saying, what do you think if this thing moved over here and drawing a line? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a good product idea. <laughs> yes. You know, you know what we could use? We could use a robot. Right. And that would draw on the whiteboard with a big robot arm. You know, there's your I don't want to, you know, put any more projects in your queue. I'm just saying if somebody did that, that'd be pretty cool. Well, they have these telepresence um, robots now. You could, you know, have the iPad face or whatever turn into the drawing. Yeah, yeah actually, it's funny that you say that because I, I do have in my personal, you know, maybe someday with all the time in the world project queue, I've, I've actually, the thing I was working on was a servo motor that was just gonna control a uh, platform so that you could stick um, either an iPad or an, a laptop on the platform and then be able to just to pivot it even through 180 degrees. And I thought you could set that at like the end of a conference table and then run Skype on the laptop and the remote person could turn the laptop back and forth so that they could face whomever is speaking. 
Nice. Yeah, I think that'd be a great idea. I think it'd be great. I call it Swivelbot, and I've actually done all the hard (laughs) parts. I just haven't put it together, and you know, um, discovered where it like throws the laptop off the stand or all that fun (laughs) stuff that happens in the real world. But uh, but I you know I I I thought to myself, well, at at the point where you've got the ability to control a um, a motor remotely, you know, then it's just a matter of how many motors, and you have a telepresence robot. And and I thought, you know, you wouldn't really need too much, you'd need three axes of control for a marker, right? You'd need in and out, away from the whiteboard, and you could actually just do that with the robot's wheels, move back uh-huh. and forward. Yeah. And then if you could go left and right, up and down, you could actually have the thing, it would essentially be a um, whiteboard plotter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could control interactively. So uh, um, I'll, I'll hang on, I'll be right back. I'm just going to code that up. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's an awesome idea. I, I want it. it. All right. Well, <laughs> Take I'll, my money. Okay, great. That'll be $3 million. <laughs> well, and, not that much. <laughs> uh, okay, well, all right. I was going to say, if you, for $3 million, you can have it in a couple months. If it's less, you know, $5 might take me a bit longer. But, uh, and I could use your help. So we'll, okay. we'll get right on that together. I'll give you a discount for helping. All right. That sounds good. Um, so, so since we've managed to wind up back on the subject of robots, I did want to also ask you about the, um, the beliefs and goals stuff. And you touched on this in your presentation at Closure Conj. Um, but I, for anybody that didn't catch that presentation, which if they haven't seen it, they should, um, I definitely super enjoyed it. It was one of the many excellent talks at, um, at Closure Conj. I wonder if you could talk a bit about, um, the whole idea of beliefs and goals and how you came across it and how you've used it in your robot work. Sure. So, um, I started reading some John McCarthy papers, which he's, he's, awesome. Um, you should definitely read his papers. Um, and I actually started with the uh, idea that I was going to do, uh, you know, seven McCarthy papers in seven weeks, which wow. was that, no, it didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> it was more like seven McCarthy papers in six months. <laughs> That's what it's it still not up. bad. <laughs> but, um, one of the papers that I read was, um, some work with ascribing mental qualities to machines and this just kind of resonated with me um, because it was just a totally different way about thinking about programming. Um, and especially when you're thinking about the goal of AI, um, you know, trying to model it, how we communicate with each other, I thought just was a very interesting idea that I wanted to explore. I mean, for example, you know, you and I are incredibly complex um, machinery in, in a way. You bio biomechanical machinery, but we're machinery. And, uh, you know, if somebody was going to program that, uh, that would be just in, so incredibly complex that it might make more sense to have it programmed in a way that we're used to thinking and relating to each other. For example... Um, when your blood sugar gets to a certain level and all sorts of complex biochemical signals happen in, in your body, your stomach rumbles and um, you are hungry. Um, but it's easier to say that I believe that you're hungry and you have a goal of getting a sandwich than describing all the low-level <laughs> things. Mm. So um, anyway, I wanted to explore this idea that he had and um, try to apply it to just programming um, my AR drone with beliefs and goals rather than saying, um, you know, go up for three seconds or go up until your height 
is um, 1.5 meters. How can you express that with beliefs and goals instead? So it was a very interesting um, idea. And I think it does have a lot of um, benefits when you're actually looking towards a goal of doing AI. So, uh, I mean, I saw your demonstration. You were able to to make it work for the, the AR drone. And actually, the, the Roomba as, as well, they worked together. Are you going to continue to use that approach uh, maybe you haven't thought this far ahead, but have you, are you, if you have, are you going to use that approach for when you involve the hexapod? I think so. Um, yeah, I'm also exploring other ways to think about AI. Um, when I was working with the beliefs and goals, that's kind of the top-down, strong AI, um, you know, modeling kind of your um, the whole world view. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been kind of now trying to understand more of the lower-level machine learning um, stuff as well. Um, so in particular, I've been, you know, you get the the Bayesian stuff um, just in the neural networks. But also there's some exciting things um, in Jeff Hawkins. He has a book out on intelligence and he has a company, um, Numenta, I think it's Grok now, but they've open sourced uh, his way of neural networks, which is a little bit different than the traditional neural networks in that you can actually learn things in a time sequence, which is, um, hmm. it's quite interesting. Huh. Well, that's fascinating. You know, I mean, uh, I, I'm a person who's into closure and datomic, and of course, time is a theme that comes up again and again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really cool. Is, is, is he the person that gave a presentation at, I want to say it was one of the keynotes at Strange Loop the year before last. I don't recall I think if you he were. Was. Yeah, he he did do he did do a presentation there. Yeah, that one was awesome. Like mm-hmm. I mean, I don't I'm not a machine learning or AI expert, but you know, sitting there as as someone in the audience who doesn't know that much about the topic, I I was blown away by um, the stuff that he was saying and implying in his talk. So that's yeah, that's super cool work. Yes, it is. Um, and it's open source, too. So uh, unfortunately, it's in Python. That needs to be remedied. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you use like ClojurePy? Would that be an option to somehow take advantage of that that way? I guess you could, yeah. Hmm. Um, I personally would like to rewrite it in Clojure. <laughs> well, there's always that. And I think people would, some people at least would thank you. I know people do love Python, but there are others of us that have other preferred languages. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's, that's really cool. Wow. Um, Boy, so Strange Loop's only uh, eight months away. Karen, you're going to get cracking so I can see the result of all this at the at the next one, right? Yeah, yeah, that would be cool, definitely. Uh, it would super, be super cool. Oh, yeah. Well, what else should we talk about? Um, I don't know. Um, How'd you come to Closure? Oh, okay, yeah, we could talk about that. Um, so I was came from Closure from Java. And uh, when I was doing some Java development, I wanted to explore some functional languages. And uh, I had two options that I wanted to explore, kind of the JVM side. So I wanted to explore either Scala or Clojure. And um, I decided to go with Clojure because uh, it was more immersive. I mean, Scala, you kind of have this knob. You're like, well, you can be object-oriented, and then you can kind of do the functional stuff, too. And uh, I really wanted to kind of change my worldview and get out of my object-oriented box. Um, so I dove into Clojure, and I started reading The um, Joy of Clojure, which is an excellent book. Mm-hmm. I love it. Changed my life. <laughs> wow, that's, that's, that's awesome. I'll, uh, we'll have to be sure to tell uh, Fulgus and Challenger that. 
exactly. Um, so, and I just fell in love with it. Um, so, I, the 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 beauty of the lisp syntax and the the power of the language and the simplicity of it, it just has really appealed to me. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just look at the language for a, a few months and you know whatever. And I, I've just kind of fallen in love with it, and I, I still continues to be my favorite language. And you said you get to use it at work uh, somewhat. Is that right? Somewhat, yeah. We're we're using it on some um, you know exploratory stuff, but we're hoping to use it on more client project stuff too. Yeah. Well, you know, from what we've seen, the the market for um, closure work is really opening up. Um, you know, every time we have a conference, it seems to me like there is more and more people who are there, um, not on their own dime, and it's wonderful. I'm always amazed, you know, when people come and spend their own money. But um, at the same time, it's super encouraging from a commercial standpoint to see that, you know, when you when you talk to someone that there's an increasing portion of, oh yeah, the, my company sent me because we are doing this thing in closure and it's it's you know it's for real. So, and I don't know. Um, I, I I'm not going to ask you about. Uh, Neo's business, but but uh, we at least have seen a, a a big upswing in um in the amount of closure work that people are asking us to do, and so uh, I would expect that uh, that uh, Neo will see um, the same in the in the in the coming weeks and months, assuming you haven't already. So that's that's very exciting for all of us. It is exciting. I mean, like you said, just uh, looking at the the difference between the conges and the growth of um you know people there and attending and what they're using it for has just, you know, just so encouraging and it's blown me away. Yeah. Um, are you going to Closure West? I am not going to make it to Closure West, unfortunately. Um, I have to uh, spend some, I did, did a lot of conferences uh, last year and um, my family has demanded that I stand home, <laughs> yeah. stay at home for a little bit. Yeah. So. I get the same thing. Um, I, it is hard to make all of the ones that that we would love to go to. There's, which is great. It's a good problem to have. It used to be, yeah. you know, there was closure conj and okay, wait till next year. And now it's like, wow, there's at least six that are uh, that are interesting on any number. Not necessarily closure specific, but you know, if you just want to stick with the closure specific ones, there's enough where it starts to become difficult to um, to to get to all of them unless you want to do a lot of speaking, which of course. Um, as you well know, is takes an enormous amount of preparation. It does, it does, and and also just balancing that your family and work life is, you know, it's always a challenge. <laughs> yeah. So, um, what is it? What do you do to get ready for a talk? I don't think we've ever talked to a guest about this before. Like, what's your process as you? Because um, you always seem like a really well prepared uh, speaker. So how do you how do you get a talk to go? I am um, still a very nervous speaker, <laughs> so I have to prepare lots. Um, from the very beginning of a talk, I just have kind of an idea in my head, and um, I kind of write down and brainstorm, just brain dump on a piece of paper, kind of ideas, and then I kind of dream about it for a while, and I like to put things in story format, so I kind of you know, have this story kind of going in my head. And then, of course, I, I spent a lot of time getting the slides together and everything. And then I, um, I just start rehearsing in my um, living room or kitchen. I just stand up and I talk to myself. I talk to the dog. Um, I talk to my robots. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> I'll rehearse it over and over again. Because invariably, when I finally get up there on stage, I am just really extremely nervous. So I find that if I can just get into that especially the first few <laughs> paragraphs <laughs> and get past that, then my, my nervousness kind of evaporates and then I can <laughs> get into it. 
Yeah, I think rehearsing is actually a really good technique like you like you do. And it shows, um, you know, your your presentations are um, very smooth. They don't they don't sound like recited at all. But um, I think that getting up and talking is a great technique. I used to I did a lot of teaching um, back when I worked at Developmenter. And, uh, you know, when I first got started, I ran through the whole five day class four times, I think, before I delivered it the first time. And wow. uh, yeah, I know it was an incredibly huge investment that I was fortunate to be able to make in terms of time. Um, I don't do that as much anymore, but it was it was a super technique. And I really encourage anybody that's um, thinking about giving a presentation where they just want to do the best job they can to do exactly what it is you do and and just get up and say it as you say it to the dog or if they have robots, I guess they can talk to them. Um, do they ever talk back, by the way? Uh, my Roomba does. Um, if they, if they, this is one of the interesting things about Roombas is they have, um, when they speak their errors, and in fact, my mine is actually cleaning in the next room right now. Oh. <laughs> but if they run into something, you know, they'll say, Roomba, put Roomba back on base. Um, so it's kind of an interesting way to say their error codes. And um, I have one Roomba that's a refurb that uh, only speaks in German. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so I never really know exactly what that's saying, but um, it does give it character. Uh, I recently bought, uh, finally bought uh, one of Tool's uh, classic albums. Um, Anim, I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's the one with the uh, that, that Latin A and E at the beginning. And there's a song on there um, that I hadn't heard before because I don't think it gets much airplay. And uh, <laughs> it sounds really ominous. Like there's this really like industrial music going on in the background. And there's this voice speaking very sternly in German. And I was like, oh, this is this is really cool. I wonder what wonder what they're saying. And it, it turns out it's a, a recipe for cookies. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's really excellent, actually. Very cool. Um, so, you know, I, I before when I asked you how you got into closure, I had just asked you uh, if there's anything else we should talk about. Um, I don't know whether I stepped on what you were about to say. If so, I apologize. What, what else? Uh, was there something else you had in mind that we should we should discuss? Um, see, we talked about John McCarthy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, oh, there's um, on the John McCarthy thread there. Uh, I guess I should mention I talked about this at uh, Closure Conj a little bit, um, but Elephant 2000. Uh, which, yeah, I can. Um, go ahead, please. Oh, yeah. So this is one of the papers. Actually, this is why I wanted to do the seven papers in seven weeks with John McCarthy, because I started out the first paper I picked up was Elephant 2000, and it's ideas that John McCarthy had for a programming language. And I could understand the abstract, and I didn't understand really anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so I started trying to read all his other papers to try to get some context and understanding. But it's really been this one paper that has driven me to look at all his other stuff. I, I slept with this paper under my pillow, um, you know. <laughs> but uh, a couple, there's a couple really strong ideas in um, his this Elvin 2000 paper. One has to do a, a lot with time. And um, he even talks about, you know, having a programming language that you could go back in time with, which kind of has some interesting things to Datomic, you know, some ideas that I saw there. And another idea is um, using speech acts to um, talk with computers and programming languages and your REPL. And this speech acts is an idea taken from philosophy um, back from John Searle. And uh, we do a lot of this uh, sometimes today in programming languages without calling it speech acts, uh, like requests 
are speech acts. Um, a statement is a speech act. Um, but there's other things that we don't so commonly do, um, such as, uh, you know, questions and, and queries, um, asking information about things and having, in particular, the computer ask us questions back. Mm. Um, and um, beliefs come into it, too, because once you your computer programmer has beliefs, then you can do things like convince it to have beliefs. <laughs> right. And you could tell it to do things when the computer believes something to be true, which is really interesting to think about, too. So I kind of explored some of those ideas just in a toy language um, that I made with Instaparse. And uh, that was a lot of fun. So the language is called um, Babar, and uh, it's out there on GitHub. So it's kind of fun. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I mean, we're still here. We are 52 years later, still kind of, um, you know, collectively as a community, uh, realizing that John McCarthy had some super awesome ideas in the form of Lisp. Like, you know, like when yeah. I mentioned this on another show, it's like, you know, th how many times in the last, you know, however many years, three or four years have I gone, oh my gosh, why didn't somebody tell me about this idea before? Or why didn't I realize it before? And so, uh, I mean, obviously, if John McCarthy had an idea about, a language that seems worth investigating. I, that um, I know you. I, I know you said you didn't get very far with it, but I wonder. So, as far as Babar goes, or or Elephant, the underlying um, language, like what? Could you tell me, like, why would I want to look at that? Like, what what is it? You mentioned time, obviously, but what else does it give me? Like, what's the what's the sell on on how this language is, in some sense, better than what we've already got? Well, I, I think, I don't know about better, but um, I think it's always valuable to get out of your box or your model of the world and step outside. And uh, I think reading through John McCarthy's papers and trying to understand his mindset in approaching things, which is radically different than I think that we approach a lot of things today, is just a worthwhile goal in itself. And uh, I, I think when you step out of your regular contacts, that's when you can then go back and say, you know, this is a great idea for innovation um, that would really be worthwhile in, you know, solving this problem and this problem. But to do that, you really need to step back and get out of your normal framework. Right. Ah, super cool. Ah. Every time I record a show, um, someone like you comes on and says stuff that uh, adds to my list of things that I absolutely have to look at. Um, but, but nobody ever comes on the show and says, here's how you get the time to do it. Exactly. So, so Karen, you're a busy person. How, how do I get more? I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I know what you're going to say to this, but how do I get more time in my day? Ah, man, I don't know the answer to that. I have, um, I have two children, as you know. Mm -hmm. Um, so I found what works for me is to just kind of get myself into a routine. So my routine is, uh, I try to put the kids to bed at 8:30. Uh, that doesn't actually really happen at 8.30, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but usually by about 9 then, um, I have them in bed. And then I have this magical hour or hour and a half <laughs> in which it is my time. Um, so I cherish that and I protect it. And uh, that's when I do my um, hacking and my reading and my dreaming. Um, and I try to keep that as um, a sacred part of my routine. So do you have any particular, because I, I actually do very, very similar things. Once the kids go to bed, I have 
a set of things that I do. Do you have like, um, you know, like every day I will do, you know, precisely this or like how do you or is it just that that time set aside and you go ahead and you do it and you just make sure, you know, through discipline that you don't, for example, you know, watch three episodes of Star Trek or, you know, whatever it is that you would do that's recreational and not necessarily reading papers from computer scientists. Well, um, it, it helps, too, that um, my husband is a sculptor, so he works from home, too. And uh, since he takes care of the kids most time during the days, he also ends up working at night during the week. <laughs> so he's working and then I have time to, to work, too, so that that uh, uh, we usually don't do our TV watching till the weekends. Gotcha. So. OK, well, cool. Um, wow. This has been a great conversation. I'm so glad that we took the time to do this. Um, probably about time to start wrapping up. Before we go, I will ask again: Is there is there anything else you'd like to tell people? No, I, th- I think I'm I'm good. I've had a great time. Uh, me too, and uh, uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, <laughs> based on our conversation, that there's going to be lots more for us to talk about in the future. So I I hope that we can get you back on the show sometime and hear more about um, hexapods or you know whatever other uh, somewhat crazy but super cool thing you've been you've been doing with your time. That'd be great. Yeah, I'd like to hear about your swivel bot too. Yes, uh, that is not my current project. It's in a sitting <laughs> in a box right now. But uh, you know, uh, it's it's really just a matter of like I've really solved all the hard problems, and I just need to put it out there and and just kind of. I think it's one of those things where you build it and then you use it, and you might discover through using it that it either is way better than you thought or not as useful as you thought. I sense a Kickstarter in your future. <laughs> you know, I've always, I've been kind of a little bit allergic to taking money from people for any of the things that I've done. I mean, I open source my stuff, not necessarily because I, I need help with the code, but because it's like, oh God, just take it for free so that, <laughs> you know, so that when you have a problem, I can go, well, I'd be happy to give you your money back, right? And there's no right, obligation. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I, I love I love the work that I have right now at Cognitect. <laughs> and the other thing is I have to say, like hardware is hard. I think maybe that's why yeah. it's called hardware. Um, Definitely. Um, well, that's super cool. Uh, so yeah um you know if nothing else maybe i should get swivelbot finished so they can come and dance with your robots when they are ready to do that that'd be awesome all right Robot that's, dance party that's my goal that's my goal right there <laughs> to get swivelbot to dance to daft punk so I, I will be in in touch with you as as you get closer to your to your goal yay um well awesome so uh you know there is one more question i do have to ask you which is what song should we close the show with well another daft punk song and uh, this is, again, off of the Random Access Memories album, um, the Doing It Right. Okay, great. That's coming up in the background right now. Um, this is the part where I thank you yet again. I am so genuinely happy that we took time to do this. You are a super interesting person. You're working on really great stuff. Um, it was super fun to talk to you. And I am definitely looking forward to when we can have you back on the show to hear about even more of the cool things you've been doing. So thanks a ton for coming on. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, it's been great. So uh, we will close there. We will thank our listeners. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Karen Meyer on Twitter at Gigasquid, G-I-G-A-S-Q-U-I-D. 
The Cognacast is produced with help from Alex Miller, Alex Ward, Damian Mack, David Chalimsky, Jamie Kite, Justin Getlin, Kelly Ross, Lake Denman, Luke Vanderhart, Lynn Grogan, Mark Phillips, Russ Olson, Ryan Neufeld, Sam Umbach, and Stuart Sierra. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.